right, fam. Welcome to the Jamal Banks Podcast. I'm excited about my uh, my guest today, man. Uh, he's Ronald, uh, Minister Ronald uh, J. McRae. And uh, Ronald uh, formally identified as a gay man for six years. Um, on October 18th, uh, 2009, he had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and he began to walk out his journey of freedom from homosexuality. I'm so honored that Ronald has uh, taken the time. Minister McRae has uh, taken the time to hang out with us today on the Jamal Biggs podcast. What's up, bro? Bro, what's going on? Thanks for having me on, Jamal. Absolutely, man. So delighted to have you here, man. Listen, uh, we first learned of your story on the uh, 700 Club a few years ago where mm-hmm. you shared your uh, shared your story and, you know, talked about your journey. And you've been, uh, you know, uh, walking out your your freedom now from, from homosexuality, man, for, for almost, what, 13 years now? Yes, it will be 13 years as of October 18th. Wow. Let's go back. Let's let's talk about your your upbringing and then we'll get into the uh, meat of this conversation, which is a very inspiring story. Um, Talk about your upbringing, man. You know, uh, where you grew up in the church and all that good stuff. Sure. So I am a DMV native, um, born in Washington, D.C., raised in Alexandria, Virginia for about the first maybe 10 years of my life. And um Ever since then, I've been in Maryland, so I am true. I, I'm true to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> true DMV native. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a family of four. I one of four boys. Um, growing up, my introduction to the faith was by way of observation mm-hmm. of you know observing God through my mom's relationship with Him. That was very much imperfect. My father's also and aunties and uncles who are all like evangelists and singers and musicians in the church. But I, you know, being a little boy, like I, I went to vacation Bible school and um, and learned about Jesus in children's church. But I couldn't say that I knew him relationally for myself. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, I was raised in the Pentecostal church, so I was used to. People shouting and dancing and speaking in tongues. Yeah. It, was, it was a weekly <laughs> um, thing for you all, right? Or for your church, right? Weekly thing. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, <laughs> so my mother did her best. Like, my mom and my dad were not married. Mm. So um, I was kind of tossed back and forth between households. Um, my mother primarily raised me because my father uh, had an addiction to drugs and alcohol. And so that, like, caused there to be a great absence Um in my life from him. And so what I learned early on about men was that they were inconsistent. You know, my dad would tell me that he would come and pick me up uh, and I would wait by the door for him to show. um, And he wouldn't. And my whole world would just crumble. (laughs) I would be so devastated. And I, that translated to me is like, my father doesn't love me. And and why am I not worthy of his love? Mm. Um, And so like I said, my mother was my primary um, parent. She reared me the most. I was very close to my mother and picked up like a lot of her tendencies. And when she was away, I would like dress up in her clothes and um, admire mama. She, you know, would press her hair that was like down the middle of her back. Um, so I really had an, an admiration, a fascination with women because I just didn't really connect with boys like and to specify more, like drill down more, I didn't connect 
well with masculinity. Mm. It was like this foreign concept. Like even with my dad, I felt like um, if he was the ideal, if he was to teach me what masculinity was and I was supposed to receive it and emulate it in some way in my life, um, we were just polar opposites. He was very rough around the edges, um, box at the drop of a dime if you crossed him the wrong way, yeah. <laughs> curse you out um, if you tried him. And I was just this very timid, shy, sensitive um, young kid who was very much into the arts and poetry and music and gymnastics. So I didn't understand masculinity. And so I gravitated more toward females. And as a result, I was teased a lot. I was bullied and called like fag and uh, der- other derogatory names. Mind you, I had no I, no concept, no roadmap for what it meant to be gay, but I was being labeled at a very early age. Um, so growing up in the church, you heard a lot about like the, the discussion around homosexuality was very much fire and brimstone, um, abomination. Um, it was very much first Corinthians six, nine, when Paul is going through the know ye nots who won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, but never got to verses 11 and 12 that says, but such were some of you, you know? that you were justified, sanctified. And so I never heard that there was like hope for transformation, redemption for a person who was gay. Um, And so at the age of seven, um, I would say that's when my identity crisis began. I started to experience sexual abuse uh, at the hands of a close male relative and two of his male friends. Um, they popped in a, a black VHS tape that changed my life. I watched, you know, a man, an adult man and woman having sex. And soon I became the subject of these horny, curious, curious teens, um, curiosity. And, um, they began to reenact on me, what they saw the men doing to the women. And so this was my introduction to sexuality at the vulnerable age of seven. Um, I am like my sexuality is being awakened. And my first point of sexual reference was with um, a man, uh, actually three of them. And so these things continued on uh, for a while. I can't even tell you how long it was, but I um, just remember being in several different situations with the three of them um, where they would make me do things to them. And, you know, this relative had a knife to my neck and made me um, perform oral sex on someone um, and he would just do really cruel things to me. Like I still to this day have a burn mark on my chest from when he uh, burned me when we were, were younger. Wow. And so, um, I just, it, it just became the norm for my experience. At first it felt like this is wrong, but yet at the same time, you know, because this person who was in the room in my family Uh, Because of who this person was and what they represented, he represented safety and protection if I were to experience it from anyone. And so I thought maybe this is okay because he's here. Um, And so, but the other part of me was like, but something doesn't feel right. And I just remember running to the bathroom and like scrubbing myself with a washcloth and trying to, you know, rinse off and wash off the scent of his friend. and I remember crying and I, I would say that was probably the first time I like 
looking back, understood or experienced shame for the first time because I internalized it and assigned blame to myself. Um, and there are a lot of um, sexual assault victims who do blame themselves and they feel like, well, maybe I did something to warrant this or maybe I desired it because my body responded to it as if it was a consensual experience. Let, so, me, let, let me stop you there for a second because you, you, you said a whole lot there uh bro mm-hmm. man so let's 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 back up really quick and we'll and we'll get back into that um mm-hmm. do, do you feel like your your dad night be, not being there kind of helped plant that seed of you know what would happen next in your life or that emptiness that you may have felt because your dad wasn't there i do i feel like dads have a a vital um place and responsibility responsibility in their child's life whether it's a a male or female child that they have. Um, I've heard it said that fathers are the ones who are supposed to call their sons forward. They call identity out of them and it helps them to show up effectively in the world and understand what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a man. Um, I didn't have that. Yeah. Um, I had inconsistency. I had uh, what felt like verbal abuse. I had abandonment and what felt like rejection. And so I was left with um, kind of an ambiguous roadmap to yeah. uh, manhood that I'm actually still on now to this day. And although I had like uncles who would like step in and do their best to be that compass, uh, it could not take the place of my dad. And so um, I learned maleness through a woman who was trying to teach me what it meant to be a a young man growing into a a man who who wasn't a man herself. Um, My mother did the best she could and she did a darn good job. Right. Um, But the reality was she was not my father. Yeah. And I, and, and, and in full transparency, I think this is the first time, maybe, maybe second time I've, I've uh, relayed this message on a public platform. The fact that, you know, and I love my dad to this day, but my dad wasn't in my life like that either. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't, he wasn't consistent in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I don't hate my dad for not being there. I don't dislike my dad for being there, but I, I am living with, um, the consequences, I believe of him not being there. Going back to the mm-hmm. point of what you just said of the fact that you didn't have a man there to show mm-hmm. you how to do certain things. Like for me, I didn't have a man to show me how to change a tire. I didn't have a man to show mm-hmm. me how to, you know, change the oil in my car. I didn't have a yeah. man there to kind of give me, to, to, to kind of give me, give me that roadmap on what it meant to be a man um in life you know so right. um in full transparency i'm right there with you um so let's 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 go back if you don't mind to the to the uh mm-hmm. to the uh, three gentlemen who you say kind of you know basically you know not kind of but they, they but they did open your your eyes mm-hmm. your young eyes to now right. sex you know mm-hmm. and uh what you may be thinking as a young person this is what sex is um have you forgiven those men for what they did to you how, how was how was that for you your your relationship I, with them or your you know, whatever with them. How How is that now? So the answer is, uh, is yes, I have forgiven them. Um, the male relative, when I was 22, when I told someone for the first time what he had done to me, God began to deal with my heart about the need for forgiveness. And I, I was resistant. And it's not because I felt like I am vindicated some way in some way by holding on to this and holding him hostage in my heart, but it was like, I don't know how to forgive him. Where do I begin Mm -hmm. with forgiveness? And so it took me about a year of God continually like speaking to my heart 
And I made the decision that I was going to go and meet with him and talk with him and, and address him and address the pain in my heart and forgive him of it. And so I went to his house. I told him, you know, I wanted to talk with him about something and didn't tell him what. And so I was fearful because he was very aggressive to me over the years when I was a child. Like physically he would hit me and uh, like I would go to school with um, my face swollen as if I had a tennis ball in my cheek because he punched me in my face and kicked the wind out of me and very verbally abusive like I was terrified of him. And so now or then being 22 and him being older than me, um, I feared that this could go really wrong. He could be Come very angry and he could hit me. He could deny it and um, make me to feel like I'm crazy and that I'm making it up. But I had determined within myself that even if he doesn't apologize or acknowledge or own what happened, I'm still going to release him because my life deserves to go forward and not be stuck at a freeze because of those things that happened between us. Um, and so I began to pour out my heart. And to my surprise, he did acknowledge it. He did remember it. And so in that moment, it's like, so I wasn't making these things up in my mind. All of this was real. And um, because that's another, that is a a side effect or an effect, a trauma effect of sexual trauma survivors where they question whether or not these memories are reality, like if it actually happened. And so all of that was dispelled when he, gave validity to it and said he remembered. And so he chalked it up to him being young and not knowing what he was doing, but he was very apologetic and hugged me. This was probably the most vulnerable moment he and I had ever had. Wow. And um, when he got out of the car, after the conversation was over. Um, that was like the beginning of my healing journey. And so we have a relationship now we're not necessarily close um but i can sincerely pray for him um i can be in the same room with him and not necessarily feel like my insides are turning and feel uncomfortable um and my hope is that we will have um an even deeper relationship his two friends i have not seen since we moved from that neighborhood that we used to live in um so i can't tell you um well, I didn't have a conversation with them, so I had to forgive them without the ability to have a conversation. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, kind of fast forward now. We've uh, talked about the fact that, you know, uh, like me, your dad wasn't there. Um, and that kind of, you know, started maybe the cycle of of, of your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now you run into these three guys who begin to make you do things that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you didn't know what was going on. And they introduced mm-hmm. you uh, to sex. Um mm-hmm. So kind of fast forward now, now that you've been in, now that your dad, now that you realize that, hey, my dad isn't here, maybe he doesn't love me. And now these three guys, they're showing me, quote unquote, love, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and touching on me and everything. Let's kind of fast forward now to maybe your adult life and how you mm-hmm. got in. And now you're involved now in the uh, gay lifestyle. Um, kind mm-hmm. of talk about that a little bit. So I remember going through like being in middle school and high school and just really wrestling with, well, actually, no. In elementary school, I began to realize a very strong sexual desire for the same sex um, to the point where it like consumed my mind. And it was like this hypersexualization um, of, of other 
boys of the, you know, the same sex. And that continued again through middle school and high school. And I decided that um, I was going to try out being gay um, for six months because it seemed like the rational thing to do because I was, you know, feeling these feelings so strongly um, and rather than suppress, I thought maybe the answer to my contentment inside and joy would be to act on the thoughts. And so um, I did. And I began to um, meet different guys on Black Planet, if you remember Black Planet for like yeah. the millennial audience. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and MySpace. And eventually I met a guy who was um, very close to my age. And we were both very curious teens. And so he was the first guy that I had, um, you know, gotten into an intimate relationship with, didn't proceed to um, physical intimacy, but very much romantic and um, sexually curious and touching and things of that nature. And so from there, um, I... met another guy who really introduced me to gay culture, the club scenes. Um, I was 16 and went to the strip club for the first time. And everything, like there was nothing <laughs> that was withheld from my innocent eyes at the time. Yeah. Like I saw everything. I'm like, okay, um, whoa, this is a whole thing. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and really... Uh, like meeting the LGBT community, like seeing a trans person for the maybe the first time and um, introducing myself and to, you know, this trans individual and, and seeing people who um, perce- were perceivably comfortable in their own skin, although society like rejected them and, and told them that they were not good enough and didn't, you know, and, and should be, um, some very cool things about this community. Um, But they were a family to one another. And so they embraced me and welcomed me in when my family turned me away uh, when they found out that I was gay. And so, um, but I remember when I was in the strip club and I saw this maybe 70 year old man and he was putting money in the um, thong of this probably 17, 18 year old guy who's the stripper. And I remember saying to my friend, I was like, I don't want this to be like, I don't want to be him mm-hmm. when I get 70. Like, I don't want this to be the rest of my life. Um, it was just something about it that grieved me because he looked so like unhappy internally mm-hmm. and joyless and just in pain. But him being in the strip club was like a form of like coping with the, whatever was going on inside him internally to try to numb it. Yeah. And I knew I didn't want to live that. I didn't want that to become my reality. And so um, then came the promiscuity and meeting different guys and, you know, now giving my body away. So I I told myself, and this will be very transparent, I told myself that I was going to um, keep my body count, the number of partners to the point where I could count it on one hand. Yeah. And I took pride in that for the time that I did. And then that began to change. Um, and I began to lose myself um, to the point where I was then, you know, I couldn't count on one hand. 
Um, I knew their names, but I couldn't count on one hand. Mm-hmm. And um, then it exceeded the second hand. And so I just really lost myself and going into the relationships. And, you know, my whole concept about love was just off. Like my thought about love was giving my body away was a, a means of meriting or earning a man's love. But it just like degraded me yeah. because in the eyes of a lot of men in the gay community, um, that, that's how they view love too. But eventually the, they get tired. You get tired of um, being with the same person and then it's on to the next one. And so there was this insatiable lust that was never satisfied, that was masked over the guise of quote unquote love. Um, but the more that I gave and gave of myself and gave my body away and gave myself away, the more empty and depressed I became and um, wrestling with wanting to live anymore. It's like, why is it that, or how is it that I could give my so much of myself and be doing the things that my mind says is the right thing to do and that my body says will bring me fulfillment, but yet feel so empty, void, and dark inside. And the reality was um, I had been living my life um, as if I weren't like an atheist, like as if God didn't exist, like attempting to find joy outside of the creator. Mm. Um, and like I, I didn't have peace when I was in the life um, as we defined it then. Um, I would have like fleeting happiness, but I didn't know true joy. Um, I had happiness when I was around my friends to the, to a degree. Yeah. I had happiness when I was in select relationships, but it, eventually that ran its course and it left me feeling like something is missing. And it was like this void that God placed in me um, that only he could feel. Like I had tried to put like marijuana in it. I tried to put drinking in, in, in it. I tried to put clubs in it. I try to put sex and relationships in it and self-worship in it, just catering and tending to Ron's wants and needs and desires. Um, But my soul was crying out for God and I didn't know that he was what I was missing. And so um, I reached the point where I was like, I, I couldn't, I definitely didn't have a relationship with God, although I knew that um, he was real, that he existed. And I remember getting ready to go to Gay Pride around 1 a.m. with this guy I was dating at the time. You said at 1 a.m.? Y'all leaving out at 1 o'clock in the morning? Oh, yeah. We partied all night, man. God. (laughs) I was in a bed somewhere at 1 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Man, we partied till the sun came up. (laughs) God, dog. Okay. Um, And so we're getting into the car. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, my, but that night my mom said, you know, Ra, that's my nickname, Ra, please don't go out tonight to stay home. And I was like, no, I want to go out. And I was being rebellious. And like she begged me and she had never like tried to influence me not to go. So this was just odd. And so we got into the car and as we were pulling off, um, four gunmen ran up to the car and uh, made us get out and lay on the street face down and the gunman said to me, this is about to be a homicide. And I just like laid there, like paralyzed in fear. Um, and I just like, it's like I blacked out and just forgot that I was being robbed for a moment. And I was just like, God, like, 
please like help me. Like I know that I have not lived my life in a way that's been pleasing to you. And that if I die, I know where I'll lift my eyes. Um, but if you give me mercy, if you give me another opportunity, I'll serve you. I'll give my life to you. And I don't know how long I was on the ground, but before I knew it, my friends were standing over me and saying, Ron, like they're gone, like get up. And I just like slowly got up looking around in disbelief that my brains were not like splattered on the street Wow! in front of my head. Um, and so from there, God just like continued to jump through hoops and hurdles to prove to me that he loved me. Because if he, if he didn't love me and didn't have a plan for my life, he had no reason to extend mercy to me that night. And so I interpreted that as God saying, I do love you. Uh, it's not my desire for you to be lost. I, I want a relationship with you. And so he sent a number of people just to demonstrate that love to me. And it eventually led to the point where I um, began to go back to church and having to overcome fears about what I thought church people were going to assume about me and say about me. Um, but they really loved on me really well and made me family. And um, on October 18th of 2009, um, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was the day that, excuse me, October 18th of 2009, that was the day I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it marked the beginning of my um, now 13-year journey of walking in freedom, and wow. transformation, deliverance, whatever you want to call it. New life is what I what I like to qualify it as. So let's so good. Let's 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 go ahead and turn that corner now and talk about the fact that you are, you know, walking in freedom since that day in two thousand nine. Mm -hmm. Um talk about what what's that been like for you? What does that look like for for someone who used to who used to identify as a gay man? Do you still have the temptations and you know how do you deal with mm -hmm. that, you know? Yeah. So I, I described this journey in my book in the beginning as uh, what felt like a separation anxiety that I experienced in the beginning. Like, yeah, God was like, I have this new life for you, but you have to give up everything that you've once known, how you've identified yourself for the past six years. That person's about to die. And so people aren't going to know you the same anymore. And so there was a lot about my life that God wanted to reconstruct, even as it relates to my understanding about myself. Um, and so it felt it was very scary. I had a lot of anxiety. I'm like, yes, I'm giving my life to Jesus, but what's on the other end of it? Mm -hmm. Like if I leave behind, like, and separate myself from my gay friends, who's going to be my new community? I don't know these church people like that. Like some of them I remember growing up, but that was a very experience to, excuse me, a very scary experience to, um, to be willing to leave behind all that I had known and pursue God for a life that I didn't know was what was before me. And so the attractions, like I thought, okay, now, you know, I'm saved. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that these affections will just like vanish, they'll go away, but they didn't. And so I thought maybe I didn't say the altar long enough or, um, you know, and so maybe I didn't get enough of God's spirit because I'm still feeling these affections. And so it was very much of like Paul talks about the war between the flesh and the spirit. Absolutely. Um, I didn't know 
what the war felt like before because I was just living my life in accordance to the flesh. But uh, I think it's Romans 6 and 1 uh, or Romans 8 and 1. Don't quote me. Yeah. Um, it's in there somewhere, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus that walk uh, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so when we start walking after in the spirit, we realize the prevalence of this sinful nature that does not want God. And so I'm now engaging in this war between what my flesh wants to do, which is have what it used to have. Um, but my spirit man wants to serve God, wants to live victoriously over sin. And so I wrestled a lot with porn and masturbation in the beginning of my journey um, because I didn't want to go back out and find myself in the same situation with men. And so um, and there was a lot of guilt and shame that the enemy tried to use to beat me down with about that. Um, and I, I used to feel like, you know, God doesn't love me because I'm doing, you know, struggling with porn. I'm struggling with self-pleasure. Um, and God was like, no, it's actually the opposite. Like, I understand, like, the complexities of your struggles. I know that in your heart you desire to please me but you're working through some things with your flesh. And like, he wasn't as impatient with me as I was with myself. He was a lot more gracious and forgiving. And so he beckoned me to draw closer to him in the middle of my struggle um, so that he could show me his love for me as an imperfect, flawed human being um, because all of us need him. Yeah. And none of like, we don't have perfection to give him. He's the only one that brings perfection to this relationship. So he's like, let me perfect you. Don't, you know, you, you can't fix yourself. You, and so going through, you know, navigating, th- you know, through that journey and really just coming into an awareness that, um, that I'm loved by God, like regardless of my affections, regardless of what I'm dealing with and wrestling with, I am loved by him and he is, uh, able to help me um, to be victorious over, you know, my struggles. And so for years, like it's been 13 years now, um, but the temptations or the attractions are not nearly as intense as they were um, before. But the truth is, I'm still human. Right. And so I could see something, uh, whether that be me outside, at, you know, or I'm at the gym or I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at these floor pages and something might, you know, pop up and I have to make a decision in that moment. If I'm yeah. going to yield to lust, or I'm going to keep scrolling or get off of the app altogether. Um, and so I am surrounded by um, accountability. Like I've had um, a spiritual father for the past 13 years who has discipled me through this journey. Um, and I can talk to him about anything like the most wildest temptations that may run through my mind or questions that I might have that are like existential. I can talk to him without the fear of judgment. And all of us need that. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many falls and sins that could be avoided. If we have um, seize the opportunity and take advantage of safe spaces that God provides to us. And so that has been a saving grace for my life over over the past 13 years. And although I'm in a position now where you know, I'm a minister and I'm ministering to others, um, other men all around the world. I still have accountability that I hold myself to because I'm never above falling. Right. And right. so I never want to 
get to the point where I think, oh, I'm good. I got this on lock. And then that would be the moment where everything comes crashing down. So, um, yeah, I'll man. let you jump in. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we're we getting ready to wrap up the conversation, man. This has been a, a very uh, interesting and very enlightening and inspirational conversation, man. So let's fast forward really quick to down the fact that you've, you know, been, you, you've been, to, you know, you, you're walking in your freedom now. Um, really quick, talk about how, how your, how your wife has helped you or is helping you and how transparent you are with her. I mean, well, duh, you're, you know, you're telling your story all over the world. So I'm sure there's anything, mm-hmm. there isn't anything she doesn't know, you know, but just, yeah. just talking about entering into that relationship, you know, with her and how that's, and how that journey has been as well. Yeah, so my wife, um, she identified as lesbian and bisexual for nine years mm-hmm. at one point of her life. And so the first thing that she could offer me was empathy. She could understand. Yep. Um, and I had not had that before. Um, and my wife very much was a safe space for me. She was affirmation for me. Uh, and even to this day, um, as temptations arise, and maybe there's a season where the temptations are a bit you know, stronger, I'm able to go to her and talk to her um, and have been over the span of our marriage over the past seven years. Um, and so um, my wife is a very real person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that if I were to share uh, something with her that she wouldn't have an emotional human response to it. But at the end of the day, you know, she's come from the same walk of life that I have. And so that empathy is what grounds us. Um, our confidence, like we said this to one another before we got married, is I, my confidence in the God in you is the reason why like, I'm choosing to marry you. Like, yes, I love you. I'm in love with you. And we have all of these commonalities and our lives complement one another in these ways. But at the end of the day, it's your uh, love for God and your commitment to him that's going to cause you to um, to remain faithful. It's going to cause you to um, to be the person that you're committing to, to me to be when we say I do. And so um, that's the confidence that I have in the God in her. I don't expect perfection from her yeah. um, because she's not perfect, um, but we can see one another. Um, and all of us desire to be seen, especially as it relates to marriage. And um, she's just been uh, such an asset to my life and ministry. Um, so I'm grateful for her. Wow. Listen, really quick, man, talk, talk to those individuals who may still be, you know, struggling with that, you know, with the whole, you know, with, with uh, you know, being gay or being mm-hmm. in the uh, homosexual lifestyle or lesbian lifestyle or just anyone in general dealing with, you know, an addiction or with a temptation that they can't seem mm-hmm. to overcome. Talk to those individuals mm-hmm. really quick. Um, what I would say to those individuals that it's easy uh, when you are struggling, um, when you've found yourself um, in a fall, and you may, uh, it's easy to have your vision clouded of God's love because um, the enemy would love to tell you that, you know, because you are in this place that God doesn't love you, but he does. There's nothing you can do that can stop the love of God. He will always love you. Um, but his love and his power uh, is able to help you, is able to keep you. Like the same gospel that saved me 13 years ago is the same gospel that keeps me to this day. And it's only by his grace um, 
and his power that I have not gone back to the gay life. Um, and so what I would say to someone who's struggling um, is there is a safe space for you. Um, I've spoken to ministers and pastors and bishops and worship leaders, uh, you name it, who are struggling, who have fallen, who are currently fallen, mm -hmm. and they're looking for help. They're looking for a safe space. And so our churches have to be a safe space if we want people to be able to receive God's love. Um, and so I say to you, there is a safe space. And if you're not sure who that person is, um, to ask God to to send that person to you. Um, I am happy to, to talk to you myself. Um, a struggle doesn't mean um, that you aren't victorious. A struggle doesn't mean that you aren't delivered. Yep. All of us are struggling and contending with this flesh in some way. Um, because once upon a time, there wasn't a struggle. So the fact that you're engaging in a fight mm -hmm. um, is a sign of progress. So I just want to remind you how loved you are um, and that if you are stuck in the fall, um, you don't have to make it a bed or you stay there. But the love of Jesus can can pick you back up again. Um, so that's what I would say to to your question. Man, that's good, bro. Listen, Minister Ronald McCray, uh, thank you, man. Listen, you, you wrote a book. Uh, talk about your, your book real quick and talk about your single, too, man. It's out there. I do. Uh, so the uh, first book that I wrote, which is my autobiography, it's uh, titled Is God Who He Says He Is, which is available on Amazon. Um, I'm a contributing author of a book released this year called Echoes. Uh, the Stories of Male Survivors Overcoming Sexual Trauma, also available on Amazon. And the name of my single is called Come Holy Spirit, available on all music platforms. Nice. Listen, Minister Ronald McCray, thank you once again, bro. I appreciate you for being so brave, man, for sharing your story. I'm sure someone listening right now um, was inspired. I was inspired hearing again. Um, had a chance to have you on my morning radio show, and we did not get a chance to, to, to really get into the depths of it. Um, but today yeah. we did. Um, so God bless you, man. We're praying for you, and uh, and uh, you. we'll do it again soon, man. God bless you too, bro. Yes, sir. All right, family, that's the uh, Jamal Bates podcast for today. I appreciate you for listening. Be sure to share it. Be sure to leave a review and uh, let folks know that we are here. All right, until next time. Thank you.